Our scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of Exodus, chapter 19, reading verses 1 through 8. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. Grace and peace to you this morning from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, So just to start this morning, I want to put a question out there. Uh, You can answer in your own head. You don't want to out yourself right now, right? Uh, On a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you agree with the following statement? Uh, The God of the Old Testament is mean and full of wrath. The God of the New Testament is nice and full of grace. 10 means I totally agree. 1 means not at all. Okay, so for anyone who is a two and above, we're starting a class next week called How Not to Be a Heretic. Okay, not really, just joking. Uh, But the reason I'm bringing this up is it's actually one of the most common misreadings of the Bible. Uh, In particular, it's the idea that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are not the same God. Or if it is the same God, somehow he has totally changed. He used to be kind of like a military dad from the 50s, like crew cut and a lot of rules. Now he's more like a hippie dad from the 60s who lets everything go, including his hair. And you see, that is a common idea, right? And that what's great about this is in the early church, they had to deal with this. If only because there was this guy named Marcion. And what Marcion was saying was you've got to get rid of the Old Testament. And this guy was a bishop. He was a big name guy. And he was saying, out with the Old Testament. You see, because in his mind, it was not just different from, but also contradictory to the gospel of Jesus. And yet, if you actually read the Old and the New Testaments, it does not hold up. That idea of discontinuity, that is. In fact, if you read the New Testament in particular, what you'll see is the way the New Testament authors themselves understood Christ was in light of the Old Testament. That everything in the old was actually pointing to and preparing for what was going to be revealed in Christ in the new. And so one way to think about it is like, how do we illustrate this? Uh, At the beginning of a service, a lot of the times we have a prelude, right? Uh, And that prelude is just taken from a song that we're going to sing later on. And so it's not a different song. In fact, it's precisely the same song. It's just whereas the prelude is a melody that hints at the lyrics, the song that we sing is, is is the melody with the lyrics right in front of our eyes. And so you see, in a lot of ways, the Old Testament is like a melody that's hinting at a certain set of lyrics. 
And when Christ came in order to institute a new covenant, he himself was the lyric. Uh, So he didn't get rid of the old song. He just completed it. Uh, And so today we're going to be looking at the covenant God made with us through Moses. We're in the sermon series, God of Covenant. Uh, Today we're Moses, and I think we're with Moses. And I think if there's one thing you could say about it, it's that everything that happened in the covenant with Moses is totally pointing to, or you could even say it is hinting at the covenant that God makes with us in and through Christ. So as we go to the passage, we're going to be looking at three things in particular that God gives to his people in this covenant with Moses. So just to start with the first It's actually before today's passage picks up. It's through the beginning of Exodus. But what happens is God's Old Testament people go down to Egypt and there's there's really no recollection of how exactly this happened. But by the beginning of Exodus, the people of God have become slaves. In particular, the Pharaoh has slowly but surely subjugated them to himself. And one thing it says about the Pharaoh is he's a total taskmaster. So he's making the people of God do things that they don't really want to do. He's providing them with less and less satisfaction over time. He is literally draining the vitality and vibrancy out of their lives. And so the Lord does two things in response to this. He hates this. He sees it. He does two things in response. One is he just starts sending a bunch of plagues. It's a total of 10 plagues. And so it's calamity after calamity after calamity. God is making it a miserable situation for everyone involved, including the people of God. And on the one hand, what that does is it loosens the Pharaoh's grip on them. If only because now the people really want to leave. Like, get us out of here. And yet, on the other hand, it doesn't really work. If only because the people of God kind of like Egypt. It's weird. It brings some sort of comfort to them. So the second thing the Lord does is he sends a tenth and final plague. And what it is, he says he's going to go through Egypt in the middle of the night and he's going to strike down the the firstborn of every family. It's going to be a horrible situation. And yet what the covenant people are told to do is take a lamb without blemish. It's got to be a lamb without blemish. Slaughter it, take a hyssop branch and use that hyssop branch to paint the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of your home. And you see, when the angel of death sees that, it'll quote unquote, pass over the people of God, which is why to this day, Jews call it the Passover. And so no one knows how this works. But in some mysterious way, the blood of the lamb makes death itself harmless. And what that means for the people of God is they have nothing to fear. And so right in the middle of the night, all of a sudden, these people who used to be captive and kind of afraid, they just come out of their hiding and they begin to leave. And so all because of the blood of the lamb, the people of God are totally free. It's probably the most beautiful thing the Lord did in the Old Testament. In fact, the rest of the Old Testament, they're always talking about it. We used to be slaves, but God set us free. That was their song. Here's the thing about it. It was just a prelude to an even more beautiful lyric. So when you go to the New Testament, one of the things Jesus says, this is in John chapter eight, he's talking to a group of Pharisees and what he tells them is that he's going to set people free, is what he says. And in response, they're kind of like, what are you talking about? Moses set people free. Dude, we're not slaves anymore. Or maybe they are. You see, because maybe there is a different kind of slavery. So what Jesus says next is whoever sins is a slave to sin. And what he's saying is sin is not just some action that we have control over. No, it's much more like a habit that has control over us. 
It's something that begins to feel like you literally can't not do it. It's that thought that you can't get rid of. It's that pattern from which you cannot break free. It's that action that we think, I'm done. I'm never going to do that again. And then a couple days later, you're right back in it. Whoever sins is a slave to sin. And so what the Lord does is what he's always done. He does two things. First of all, he sends plague after plague after plague, meaning he makes the sin that we are stuck in increasingly miserable. It's calamity after calamity after calamity, meaning, meaning maybe things in your life begin to fall apart. Even if they don't fall apart, there is a lot of suffering involved. And so at first, God typically makes the situation much worse. And what that does is on the one hand, it loosens sin's grip on us, if only because now we really want to leave it, right? Get us out of here is what we're saying. And on the other hand, it can be a fearful thing to leave your little Egypt. There's some sort of weird comfort we take in it. So that's the first thing. It's a bunch of plagues, things falling apart. But then the second thing is the Passover. And what you do at the Passover is you take a lamb. And it's got to be a lamb without blemish. So that begs the question, who or what in the world is a lamb without blemish? And it's Christ. In fact, when he first comes, he first starts his ministry, John the Baptist looks at him from afar and he goes, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you see later on when he's up on the cross, I don't think they even knew they were doing this, but they take of all things a hyssop branch. And they hold it up to him with sour wine, gets blood all over it. Remember, a hyssop branch is precisely what you use to paint the blood on your doorpost. So take the blood of that lamb. Putting on your doorpost means surround your heart with it. Cover yourself. Put your trust in it, you see, because no one knows how, but in some mysterious way, the blood of the lamb makes death itself harmless. And so what that means for the people of God is you have nothing to fear. It could be right in the middle of the night. You could be in the thick of a really dark place is what that's saying, and you can just step out of your old life. And what the Lord will do is he will split the sea in front of you. And what will emerge on the other side is in fact a new life. You see, that is our song. It's the same song. We used to be slaves. But God set us free. And that's the first thing that God does in this covenant with Moses. Let's go to the second. In order to illustrate the second thing that he gives, I want you to imagine a really peaceful and beautiful river. And the thing about it, it's 100 feet deep, so it's incredibly powerful. It's got tremendous force. And originally, this river used to flow into this one valley. It essentially irrigated the valley. And so there, there were flowers along the riverbanks. There were farms throughout the valley. The river created this abundance of life wherever it went. And yet what happened is one day there was this catastrophic earthquake and the ground beneath the river shifted. And what happened to the river is it began to flow in the opposite direction. If you're like a geophysicist, don't try to make sense of it. I'm not. I'm just illustrating something. Uh, but what that means is instead of flowing into the valley and giving it life, what the river did now is it flowed into the city and it was incredibly destructive. It took out a bunch of homes. It ruined a bunch of lives. It just flooded everything that it was not supposed to flood. And the thing is, it was not just a one-time thing. This was an ongoing phenomenon. The river stayed that way. It never went away. And so that river that used to give life was now a river that ruined pretty much everything. So generation 
after generation passes, this is still going on. It's a horrible situation. And yet here's what happens. Now, one day this brilliant engineer comes along. He's actually got a way to reverse the river's flow. It's going to be another shift of the ground. And you see, based on his method, if you do it right, it's going to make that river go in the right direction again. And so the people in the town, they get these plans. Now, on the one hand, they're kind of intrigued by it. Sounds kind of nice to them. But on the other hand, they are really resistant to it. You see, because they've kind of gotten used to a river that ruins things. And for some strange reason, they like it that way. Maybe the bigger thing is they've never really seen the river run the right way. So they don't even realize how much better their life could be. And so what they do is they take the engineer's instructions and they actually just alter them ever so slightly, actually pretty dramatically, uh, so that instead of reversing the river's flow, they just build a big dam to contain it. And the thing about the dam is because the river has so much power, sometimes the water still breaks through, ruins everything in its path, and even when it does not break through, there are a bunch of little leaks always kind of seeping through. So the people are almost always on the verge of destruction. On top of that, the river that used to create an abundant life, it is now just dammed up. It's useless. And so anyone could look at this situation. It's like, oh my goodness, this is so stupid. They could have an abundant life and instead they're just damming up the river. They could be cultivating something amazing and instead they're just on the verge of drowning. Like who could ever be so foolish? To which the Bible says, you. I include myself in me too. All of God's people. So let me try to explain. The river that runs deep is the affections of the human heart. And the thing is, God created the affections of our heart to flow in a particular direction. They were really meant to flow toward him and his will. And then as part of that, our affections were meant to be life-giving to the world around us. And so in the beginning, literally everything that we love, the things that we delighted in, the things that make us happy, the things that we ran toward and pursued, all of it was good. It gave life to other people. It created beauty wherever it flowed. The human heart was nothing but a blessing and benefit to the world around it. And yet in the fall, something went wrong. The ground of our heart shifted and the river of our affection started going in a totally different direction. Meaning now we love things that we ought not to love. Now we want things that are not at all good. Now we run after things that instead of giving life to others, they create a wake of destruction in our path. And so we've got a problem and it is not just a one-time thing. This is an ongoing phenomenon. We see it everywhere we look. The human heart is destructive of itself, other lives, the world as a whole. There is something wrong with us, friends. And here is the thing. In our passage, what the Lord does in this covenant with Moses is he gives his people instructions on how to reverse the flow. God himself is that brilliant engineer. He knows how to shift the ground of our hearts. And so in the passage, remember, he has already set his people free. So now what he says is he's going to guide his people forward. In particular, he's going to give them instruction on how to live. See, he doesn't just want to take us out of Egypt and leave us right there. He also wants to get us on a journey to the promised land. And so if we keep reading, right after our passage ends, it's all sorts of instructions. 
Uh, it's the Ten Commandments in particular, uh, but on top of that, it's a bunch of other commandments on how to carry out your life. And what God is essentially saying in all this is, here's how to reverse the flow of your heart. You do not want to end up in Egypt again. You do not want to flood and destroy your life. No, you want your heart to be free, and so here's how to reorient what you love. Yeah, here's what the people did instead. They took all of God's instruction, and instead of letting it reorient their hearts, they just used it to restrain their actions. So for instance, they didn't murder anyone, but they still hated people. They didn't steal anything, congratulations, but they still loved money. They didn't bear false witness in court, but they still gossiped pretty much everywhere else. All of which is telling us the instruction of God did not actually change their heart, it just put a dam around it. And the thing is, if we do that, it's like we don't realize how much better things could be. See, what God is offering in this covenant is an abundant life with hearts that produce beautiful things. Instead, I think what a lot of Christians have settled for is kind of a dry life with hearts that are just bottled up. And don't get me wrong, it is way better to restrain evil affections than to just let them run wild. <laughs> and yet, even better than that is to reorient those affections so they can be free. So think about this. When you go to the New Testament, you can see it in Christ's teaching. Whereas typical people tend to focus on outward actions, he is really focused on your heart. You can see it in two main ways. One is throughout the Sermon on the Mount in particular. That's Matthew 5 through 7. Um, what Jesus does there is, first of all, he goes up the mountain. Just like Moses. Went up the mountain, got the Ten Commandments. Jesus goes up the mountain and he immediately begins quoting the Ten Commandments. He goes, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. That's the action. But I say to you, don't even be angry. Look at your affections. What's causing that anger? You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. That is the action. But I say to you, don't even lust. Look at your affections. What is going on in your heart? You've heard that it was said, don't swear falsely. That's the action. But I say to you, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Look at your affections. How come you don't just tell the truth? And so you can look at these teachings and you can see it. What he's doing is instead of just damming up what flows out of our hearts, he is reorienting our hearts altogether. Uh, if we're open to it, that is. So that's one of the ways Christ completes this covenant with Moses. The other, right toward the end of his life, what he begins to say repeatedly is he's going to give people a new spirit. And what that spirit is going to do, it's the Holy Spirit, what he's going to do is he's going to take Jesus' teaching, he's going to write it on your heart. Meaning instead of just handing us a Bible and leaving us on our own, he's going to come into our life and be our teacher. And you see, if we just surrender to the spirit of Jesus, meaning we're internalizing the words of Christ from the Bible, we're letting those words redirect, reorient our hearts, and it is him who is in control of this, not us, then what's going to happen is the river of our affections is going to start flowing in a way that is really good. And the thing is, that was God's plan all along. He does not set us free so we can just live half-hearted lives. No, he sets us free so our hearts can become whole again. 
Uh, so let's go to the last thing. So far in this covenant with Moses, God has given his people freedom from the Pharaoh. He's given his people instruction that reorients their hearts. Now, the last thing that he gives them is manna. <laughs> it's like, what's that about? That's kind of like a bread-like thing that rains down overnight and it's new for them every morning. Uh, so we're going to circle back to that in a minute. But first, I just wanted to share, when I came to faith, uh, it was a really life-changing thing for me to come to faith. I didn't grow up in the church. Uh, more than that, I was really resistant to the will of God. We were kind of like Christmas and Easter folks. Uh, and I was deeply resistant to the will of God. And so at a certain point in my life, in particular, it was when I was a teenager. That's why I kind of pick on teenagers in some of my sermons. Uh, but I started waking up to the fact that I was, in fact, in bondage to certain things. And what they were is beside the point. <laughs> What matters is as I started hanging around the church, that would have been in ninth grade, people started inviting us to come to church with them. I knew there were these things in my life that were not pleasing to God. And I noticed that I did not want to be free from them. So right before my senior year of high school, that summer I got invited up to a church camp. I was up at Hume Lake, Christian camps up in the Sequoia National Forest. So I go there. With a friend, I'm moderately interested in Christianity, not really open to God's will, pretty content in my little Egypt. And yet this one particular sermon, I don't even know what it was. It was just like the Lord drew me out of the water and by his grace, he set me free. And the thing is, I could feel it. The spirit had shifted something in my heart. I was a totally different kid coming home. And as part of that, he didn't just set me free. He also gave me this new way of life. And I was pumped about it. To be honest, I was obsessed with the words of Jesus. I was reading the Bible every night. I was on fire about the Christian life. My heart had never felt so full and free before. And so a year later, I go to college. And I don't know what happened. I fell apart. More specifically, I fell back into a lot of the same stuff that God had already delivered me from. On top of that, now I was falling into other stuff on top of that that I wasn't before. And you see, I felt like I was going right back into my own little Egypt. I did not know what was going on. I was going to these churches. Almost every time I heard a message, it was a lot about coming to faith. It was all about getting set free. It was all about getting saved. It was all about getting new life, getting everything we've been talking about so far in this covenant. And so a lot of times the message would be incredibly concerned about the people out there who had not been saved clearly, and I would be sitting there and thinking to myself, oh my goodness, that is me, brother. Maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I don't belong here. Maybe everything I thought before was just kind of a fluke. It was just in my head. And yet what I did not realize is there was this one huge mistake that I was making. I would say it was a mistake in all the preaching I was hearing. And it was this notion that once you leave Egypt, you go straight into the promised land that it's just one big victory march for the Christians, right? But you see, that is not how the story goes. Before God's people ever reach the promised land, what do they do? They go through a long desert. In that desert, there is a lot of backsliding, there is a lot of failure, there is a lot of folly, and yet there is one thing that God is always giving them that's keeping them going. In particular, it is that manna that's new every morning. And you see, here's the thing about that. If you go to the Gospel of John, this is chapter 6. What Christ says there is he himself is the manna. The lyric to the melody, you could say, he himself is the manna that God has rained down from heaven. In other words, it is his mercy that is new for you every morning. 
And for that reason, in spite of your weakness, you can be confident that God is still for you. Whereas it is not okay to be leaning back into Egypt all the time, it is by his grace that we can just move forward. Uh, that we can repent of those faults, that we can find a fresh start right in the middle of the desert of this life. And you see, I didn't begin to realize that until I came to this one particular church that gave me that bread of grace every single week. It's communion, right? Every week. And some of you know this, but that was this church. And I came here broken. Still am. None of us is a finished product. Yet what I found in this place was healing. And I say that not to make much of us in our worship, but I do say it to make much of Jesus and his grace. That he is the lamb whose blood can set you free. That he is the one whose teaching can reorient what you love. And you see that he is also the bread that's come down from heaven to give us grace. And whereas Moses was a pretty cool prelude, the point of a prelude is to prepare you for the song. And so I pray this morning that as you and I journey through the desert of this life, what motivates us and moves us forward is the song of Jesus and his love. So that at the end of this life, we will get to the edge of the Jordan. As we cross in to the promised land, what will wash over us is not a death of which we have been afraid, but rather a love by which we have been healed. With that, let's pray as our worship team comes forward. Father, we thank you this morning for the gift of Christ. To whom all the covenants you've made point and in whom everything that we deeply need is found. God, based on everything that he is, we should be a lot different from how we really are. And we know that we should be a lot freer, much more vibrant in the faith, much further along in our walk. And yet, if we can be honest, we're not. And so, Father, we call out to you for the help that we need. We pray that you would heal what is broken in us, that your spirit would lead us. out of each and every bondage and into a new and much more abundant life. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.